We're taking Tacky Talk on the road today and uh, really far on the road with State <laughs> Representative Tacky Chan, who is in Austin, Texas. Tacky? Yes, Joe. Good to see you uh, from Austin, Texas. It's about 74 degrees and cloudy. I'm sure some people are very jealous about the fact it's uh, a little warmer here, but I feel like it's 90. Uh, so I'm in uh, the Austin, Texas for a conference called TechNet. It's uh, composed of 100 of the largest technology companies uh, in the United States, uh, and I'm here to listen in on experts on panels ranging from autonomous vehicles uh, to uh, responsibility of artificial intelligence and uh, new technologies in healthcare and economic development and education. So it's a full day uh, conference. I got here late last night, uh, Wednesday night. I came in very late, so I'm a little exhausted actually, um, and got up very early um, and uh, walked from. The hotel to actually uh, Google headquarters in Austin. Wow. Well, I mean, Austin is the capital of Texas. Maybe, maybe people don't realize that. So it makes sense. I guess they'd hold it there. Uh, yeah, well, last year it was in Atlanta, uh, which was also uh, very good. So it, it encouraged me to want to come back to this conference as much as uh, some folks, uh, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, why you go here and there? Well, the conferences, you have to go to the conferences. Conferences don't always come to you. And uh, it's also a unique opportunity to get a lot of experts in the room. And also there's about another uh, 25 to 30 legislators in the room next door, which I just stepped out in, uh, that, you know, we can talk over dinner and drink sort of later on about what they're doing on consumer data, data privacy, you know, their AI task force, you know, where they are on Thomas vehicles, you know, grid electrification and so forth. Um, you know, I did an EV conference, electrical vehicle conference uh, back in October. You know, got a really good overview uh, from other states from where they are on uh, electric vehicles and uh, grid modernization. Um, so, uh, you know, when there's a chance and it seems relevant to topics I work on as a committee chair, um, you know, it's been uh, it's always a good thing to try to get to as, as, as much as I can when I can. And in case you all wondering, I mean, you know, I am paying for this one uh, myself. I'm not uh, taking any gifts, but I do have to do a whole reimbursement to tech net which is a bit of paperwork but not not a lot of paperwork but i have to write them write them back a, a reimbursement later so but hey i mean that's what you gotta do and tomorrow uh you know there's a continuation of our breakfast meetings and then uh there's actually a treat we're going to go uh, do a, a a private tour of the texas state legislature as as you pointed out it is the capital and uh, i'll be flying back home tomorrow evening just in time for veterans day parade the saturday morning well, I'm I'm guessing the reason you got there so late is because you were working at the Massachusetts State House so late, right? With the vote on uh, on the governor's supplemental budget. Yeah, it's a weird sup. I mean, it's a reconciliation budget. So the fiscal year 23 numbers finally permanently came in uh, after the October tax returns, especially. Uh, and uh, we are, uh, you know, we had a little bit of a shortfall, but not so badly that we couldn't uh, adjust uh, FY, uh, mon FY23 money around. Large part of it was capital gains. I kept talking about it over and over again. Uh, capital gains is not part of the baseline budget. It is going to stabilization fund, rainy day fund. So really doesn't no impact on uh, FY23 spending or any shortfalls by occur. Plus, the governor had over $500 million reversions you know, that were unspent money. So you know, we have to reauthorize or we use that to plug some other holes, which we essentially did. The uh, additional funding we provided, you know, we did several things. One, we did collective bargaining agreements for public employees. Which we should have done um, last year is actually baked into the FY24 budget. It's not like new funding in the sense that we didn't expect it coming. We already knew the numbers. We just had to authorize it. So it's a supplemental, yeah, but 
No, it's kind of one of those funky situations. You already spent they the money, did. basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, spent but unauthorized. Okay. That, you know, it's because we put into the budget doesn't mean authorized to spend it. So we create the authorization. And then, you know, some other uh, backfill accounts or things like elections. We had a special election in um, in uh, Senator Gobi's old district, Fitchburg to Worcester, Spencer, or that part of the state. And, you know, some other uh, odds and ends on bill paying. And, but, the you know, lion's shares, you point out, so it's $15 the governor asked for from one time of us uh, going through the, um, what do we call it? Uh, 2021, we created a, a, a rotating account where surplus money has gone in and out of there over the years and was created during COVID when we didn't expect to have a surplus because we were expecting like a 20% shortfall. So um, as a result, you know, there's still some money left in there. There's some money you can move from different trust funds in and out of that account uh, for one-time appropriation. Uh, but you can imagine we're very frustrated in the legislature of the governor's office, uh, not just myself, but all my other colleagues, um, especially colleagues who have a major impact uh, from migrants in their uh, uh, communities where they're taking in as many as 10 to 20% more students if you're a small, small community. You add like 20 kids to that system. That's a lot. Mm. Uh, if you're a small community and if you're a regional school, you know, all this, if, obviously Quincy is not a regional school, but if you're a regional school, you know, you have to put in a share of the cost for the high school, for the middle school as a regional school. So, you know, th this was a big deal uh, problem because the government had solutions. And Speaker Mariano and Chair Merkowitz and uh, uh, Leader Paish, you know, you know, and Leader Paish in particular took the lead on behalf of the Speaker's office in the House to talk to the governor's folks. And still not getting great responses, to be frank with you. It's, we understand this is an emergency that was unexpected. Uh, however, you know, at this stage, we hope to have a plan and better utilization resources. So the money is actually divided up that where we don't just give you a blank check, so to speak. You know, $50 million goes directly to shelter programs. Winter is coming. Shelters are maxed out. People don't realize shelters are almost always maxed out in the greater Boston area. Um, you know, put some money directly to healthcare assistance, right? You know, again, immunizations are very important. I know they have mixed opinions, but these are folks that are coming from other places do not have equal healthcare systems as ours. But there's also prenatal care. So there are a lot of pregnant women coming too, you know, with small children. You know, and they also have um, money set aside, for, as I talked about earlier, for uh, school systems, you know, particularly that are uh, very heavily impacted where they uh, will get the Chapter 70 formula calculation per pupil. So they, they're consistently going to be made whole uh, as they try to handle this influx. Um, and uh, we also make sure that there's food programs and other human service programs attached to it. So it isn't as simple as $250 for you know, shelter money for hotels. You know, we want monthly reports. We want regular reporting from the governor as a condition for these funds. And, you know, as you, as you can hear, you know, we're looking at a holistic approach. Uh, you know, a lot of us are uh, based in our communities of various kinds. And uh, some of us communities are much more human services like Quincy. Uh, some communities like Wellesley is not. And uh, there is a resource drain on uh, communities that do provide services like Quincy does, who has to now go to places like Wellesley to provide services, which they historically don't need. Right. And uh, how would they distribute these funds and whatnot? I mean, we want to know how they're going to do it. And, you know, we want to have better uh, coordination on who's leading what. And this is kind of part of the situation we're facing. Yeah, as I understand, also there's a requirement attached that uh, an overflow shelter location be identified soon. Yeah, that's part of the fifty million dollar component. You know, we okay. want to have something there. And another frustration has been expressed by members is that uh, you know we keep providing uh, locations like Mount Ida has been brought up by the Newton delegation. You know, for whatever reason, 
the administration is unable to, to come to some deal with Mount Ida, which none of us can understand. Uh, I do understand that gobbling up some of the UMass systems, uh, uh, open buildings like conference rooms and whatnot. But, you know, we also have uh, National Guard armories that are, well, we mean, not the Quincy one. That's, that's you know, ancient. But, you know, there are other armories around the state that can be converted into uh, temporary shelters. Right. You know, the, the, the legislative delegations do know where there's open property. Uh, they can work with local government or, you know, there are state owned that, you know, that uh, that we could put new shelters. Um, Quincy is not one of those places you all know. I and mean, Quincy does not have a lot of open spaces. But you'd be surprised, you know, as you talk to uh, our colleagues and in, in the legislature, they they're aware of a lot of um, I would say abandoned, but underutilized. Yeah. Yeah, the speaker mentioned also the Heinz Convention Center. I don't know how the rep from that district feels about that, but that could be a possibility. Well, we don't have sympathy for Boston folks in Quincy on certain things. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Something to do with a bridge, perhaps? <laughs> not not my problem, of course. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's Bruce's issue. But, you know, you can grow Bruce about that some more uh, in the next, next encounter. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, to us is a shared cost. And we all know Boston receives the lion's share of the state resources it's right. it is 50 percent of the gdp of the state and you know close to 45 percent well basically 50 percent of new england so we're very respectful understanding the port of boston but you know at the same time though you gotta you know you gotta <laughs> you gotta take up more shares opposed to dispersing your problem to mm-hmm. other sta- other communities but the migrant issue is unique it's not the standard mass and cash or homeless issues that occur in boston uh, this is a uniquely statewide problem um and uh you know the government. Uh, this you know the judge, you know Supreme Court judge had, you know ruled that um, uh, that you know we can cap it uh, under the fact the legislature uh, does not provide more of money. Uh, the law can't be complied with, and the governor is unable to execute. So, yeah. you know that that's correct ruling uh, because uh, we don't provide resources, and there's no other way to acquire resources. The executive branch can execute what the legislature intends. Right. Yeah, I know that uh, there'll be. A- a work authorization clinic coming up soon with the Department of Homeland Security because that ultimately that's the goal, right? To get folks out of shelter and and into productive lives. Well, agreed. And uh, what's also very important to keep in mind is that you know this is a humanitarian crisis. Again, I said this over and over again. I mean, you know, they're looking for border uh, border safety. This is not a safety issue. It is a humanitarian crisis. You go to look at other countries around the world how they treat this thing. They're all treated as a humanitarian issue. We're looking at one right now in the Middle East. We're looking at one in Ukraine. We're looking at one in Myanmar. I mean, neighboring countries, yeah, it's a security matter to keep conflicts from overflowing into their country. But when people come over the border, it's treated as a humanitarian crisis. So, I mean, you know, the federal government does a really crappy job at this. I mean, let's call it what it is. They do a crappy job. And even the spending package that got down in D.C. that's all gummed up in the House of Representatives regarding, you know, uh, Ukraine and Israeli assistance money, so, you know, includes $1.4 billion-ish, give or take, for state assistance on the migrant issue. That mm-hmm. is chump change. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. folks? Chump change. Your federal delegation has no understanding what's going on in their states. Not just Massachusetts. This is a national state. For all 50 states, you know, are, are, well, well, not Alaska, Hawaii, but the 49, 48 continental states you know, are facing pretty much the same thing we're facing at different levels. Yeah. And there's such a disconnect with the, the federal delegation and their uh, local uh, state delegations. It is quite astounding and very disturbing. 
what's going on? Are they just too busy in infighting that they're not paying attention to their constituency, you think? Well, I've always, again, I've talked about this before. I operate in the theory that if the further away from home, the harder it is to stay in touch. Mm. So you don't see the direct impact. You don't have to deal with the direct issues that we as legislators and city councilors and selectmen and mayors and city managers and town managers and school committee members, you know, all have to face, you know, when you have a, a local issue, it comes up in our doorstep, we have to deal with it. Uh, you know, federal delegation folks don't actually have to engage those local issues, hmm. right? And that's part of it as well. So, you know, it's like passing the buck problem, but we didn't create the problem. I mean, the Fed's poor policy on what should be a humanitarian crisis, again, you know, should have had a coordinated response from the federal government, as you said. The workforce training, workforce job uh, uh, visa permitting thing they're going to put out. That should have been done, you know, as a beginning process of a larger plan of how to handle a humanitarian issue, as opposed to treating this as a border security issue. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You're letting them in. It stops being a border issue if you let them in with visas. Right. Yeah, I know that this concern that the 250 million is just a kind of a stopgap band aid. It won't won't cover the entire cost. Yeah, it is. I mean, let's, I'm going to lie to y'all. It's, yeah, it is exactly what that is. I mean, we put $310 million in shelter program already. That wasn't just a migrant issue. We had been anticipating some kind of economic shift mm-hmm. in Massachusetts anyway, because the hot time is run too hot. And we talked about the unemployment issue being extremely low still. Uh, but, you know, there's still uh, being, everyone's being squeezed. I mean, this holiday season, as you're going to see inflationary costs. So, you know, not surprising. We have put a little extra money to human services in general, FY24 budget. I'm sorry. Yeah, FY24 budget in anticipation yep. of a potential uh, and most likely will be coming uh, impact on uh, families regarding uh, everything from housing to food. And, uh, you know, I do anticipate increased uh, usage of our uh, SNAP program as uh, families uh, are being pitched. Right. And that was that was before the migrant crisis. Yeah, and I was talking to a reporter friend, which you are not named. I do have friends in the media, and that's beyond you, Joe. I love you, but I have other friends too. And uh, pointed out to me that uh, of the migrant situation, the media has been informed that about 50% of the migrants are not, I'm sorry, 50% of the shelter recipients are not migrants. Okay, that's interesting. That means we got to, yeah, that means that initially I heard it was one third. Mm -hmm. It's jumped to one half, which means that we are having a domestic problem here. Uh, as well regarding uh, shelter assistance and housing. I get constituent calls on a regular basis. Hmm. So, you know, folks, keep in mind that, you know, yeah, the migrant is a huge issue. It is. Uh, but the fact, you know, the, the you know media reports are, are, are being informed, whether they report it's another matter. But, I mean, they've been informing folks that, you know, they're looking at about 50%, you know, of the migrant, of the so-called you know, housing shelter problem is not all migrant-driven. It is, you know, locally driven too. Yes, yes. So half, so... Basically, half the people were already in Massachusetts, already residents of Massachusetts, and now they're facing uh, this issue. Yeah, and it's compounding. And I remind folks again, you can't get a Section 8 or MSRVP or be, be in public housing if you're not a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the migrants are on visas, like a lot of emergency visas. They, they don't qualify for um, any type of public housing or housing vouchers. So that yeah. actually also compounds it as well, because there's no way to get a permanent housing through a subsidy program. Uh, it doesn't exist. So what, once you put them to work, now you still have the standard housing crisis we have that all of us are facing at the local level. That it, Yeah, that the cost of living is exorbitant, right? Exactly. Even for folks who are working full-time or, or more than full-time. Yeah, I saw a report from uh, 
one of those payroll companies on the news term. It's not ADP, I think. It's one of the other ones. And they reported that, yeah, there's still like 1.5 job openings per person nationally mm-hmm. uh, uh, on, on that level, which is astounding. It's about 1.5 jobs available for every person on a national level. That, that's a lot of openings with not enough people. Right. But, but also noting that as a result of that, more people are doing more than one job. Yes. These payroll companies, you know, are uh, can get your data because they, they have to pay you. Know, they pay you direct deposit or by check, and they sync up to your uh, numbers on Social Security. So you, you know all your payroll and and FICA and, and that stuff's all taken out properly under under taxes and whatnot. And uh, they're seeing more and more uh, people who have more than one job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not surprising. Not surprising. Just trying to make ends meet for sure. Um. Can we talk a little bit? I know we were limited on time today, Taki, but um, the effort to unionize uh, app-based drivers. I know there was a, a rally at the Statehouse just recently. Yeah, there's been a two conflicts here. So this there's a group of a union guys, BJ, I think it's BJ52, and I think one of the SEIU unions. Uh, it's been a little while. We're looking to put on a ballot question, you know, creating a unionization of um, gig workers, which it's a little confusing to talk about just gig or just, you know, Uber app rideshare drivers, right? And then, you know, the AFL-CIO has not endorsed uh, this ballot initiative. Oh. So while it is being perceived as a union issue, not the a national, I mean, the statewide AFL has not endorsed it, and not all the locals are on board of this map. So it is a bit of a messaging issue uh, that is being perceived as being a, a strictly union issue. It is not strictly a union issue. It's a segment of the existing unions. And it's a little complex because they're trying to become employees, collective bargaining, but maintain independent contract status. They want mm. benefits, uh, but don't want to be, um, or don't want to be told what to do. And uh, you know, it is uh, one of those unique jobs, this ride sharing, where the employee dictates when they want to work, mm. unlike other contracting jobs where um, you have to have a delivery, you have to have an outcome. So if you contract me to build your porch, you want it done by X period of time and X condition in X dollars. Yeah, and that's all contractual. It's all in writing, right? That isn't the case of app drivers. Rideshare oh. drivers, while the uh, there's a lot of control by uh, the rideshare company, Uber, Lyft, uh, and so forth, the employee actually has a lot of th- that they could do too. There's no, there's no like... You have to work X hours. I'm expecting X number of hours out of you. I'm expecting X number of dollars out of you. I'm ex- expecting X number of rides out of you. It's, it's really kind of a unique uh, situation where it's not a typical contract that we all um, that we all uh, work under. It's, we mm-hmm. understand contracts collectively. All of us have a basic understanding of how it works. Mm-hmm. But ride sharing is kind of curious because there's no, it's not a conventional contract between the employer and the um, employee because it's not employee employee. It's a contractor contract E, but a contract E has enormous say on the outcomes of the job they're performing, which is dependent on the riders giving uh, giving uh, the employees. Um, how do I put this? The outcome of the of the contract E, the driver. Is hundred percent dependent on the rider's ratings. So the other than complaints made to the rideshare company, the outcome of the of the rating star you give dictates whether or not the contractee can continue to work for the contractor. 
Right. Yeah. So the driver really is working for the passenger more than anything. That's correct. It's a very strange relationship that is very unique to this type of circumstance. I mean, other you know, other one could be similar as delivery services, but mm-hmm. could be similar enough. But rideshare, you know, when you think about the economic model all the way through, a lot of control by the contractee uh, mm-hmm. to dictate uh, when, where, and how often and how much money to make. Contractor does not dictate those terms; they just collect their share of the action. The unless there's a direct con- con- complaint to the contractor, the uh, the recipient of the benefit, meaning the the passengers, the, the ridees, mm-hmm. uh, dictate the performance of the contractee to the contractor, which the contractor determines whether the contractee should continue to work for them. Yeah, I see. So uh, interesting. Yeah, it, almost uh, a rider and the driver have a have a contract themselves, basically. Correct. You're, when you have a Uber driver, there's a contract uh, term. So where Uber, Lyft, or other ride service. You know, you have a contractor term for point to point B. The mm-hmm. dollar's been set. Your expectations get there with the dollar made. We passed laws in Massachusetts and many states regarding, you know, how to handle surge pricing, how to handle, you know, make sure that the number on your screen is what you're guaranteed to get. So there's no, you know, uh, bait and switch mm-hmm. situations. Um, and also regarding insurance coverage. Uh, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of that going on. So, uh, it's like I said, this is a very complicated issue. People oversimplifying this as like, you know, big bad company versus, you know, poor drivers. And a lot of drivers don't want to be also subject to a collective bargaining agreement either, because mm-hmm. now it sets up terms they have to meet as right. opposed to setting their own terms of how they want to run essentially a small business. Yeah, that was part of the attraction of that 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 app based or or you know uh, dr- um, driver based technology to begin with. It's like, oh, I can use my own vehicle. I can do this whenever I want. It's kind of a, a side hustle, as they say. And that's correct, right? Uh, you can try to do this sixty hours a week, and you have this enormous flexibility to be at your uh, family uh, obligations, and you can work you know strange hours in the middle of the night, you know, to meet those family obligations, or you can do this as an extra twenty hour week job in between, you know, a regular nine to five job. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. And it's so, contracted. So you're responsible for your taxes, your FICA. Mm-hmm. You can you can create an expense account. You can create a personal corporation. You can create a, a, uh, uh, everything in your Schedule C. I mean, there's that, you know, there's that part too where yeah. you could, you know, basically run your little business. Yeah. They, are they given 1099s from the from the companies? Do you know? Uh, yeah. They have to have some kind of 1099 because they're, they're contractors. Right, right. Okay, interesting. All right, well, we'll see where that goes. Speaking of, uh, we're, while we're talking about driving, talk about the the uh, bill uh, being a lot bantied about about uh, red light camera enforcement. Yeah, we talked about this last time. You know, some yeah. states have you know red light camera enforcement where they can take a picture of your plate, and uh, you know you you know cross a red light. You know, they they can take that down and um, uh, you know send it to law enforcement to come get you. This is not the state of Massachusetts. If you look around Quincy Center carefully, you could find actually traffic cameras. Yeah. Um, they're mostly used for security reasons. I mean, the yeah. primer commits, there's an accident. Um, they can use to check weather conditions live, for example, the snow and whatnot. But there are cameras already in Quincy, in, in the new Quincy Center. And again, they're not for traffic enforcement. Mm-hmm. There's a bill out there to do a pilot program to allow the 10 communities of 2,500 people or greater to allow to have one camera per 25,000 people. Uh-huh. It's a pilot. It's not a new idea. It's been around for quite a few years, um, but it's a lot of you know whether or not you want to make the financial investment. He doesn't. We're not giving you money, so you know 
that's actually part of the reason why this bill isn't moving very quickly. Uh, yeah, nobody I, wants to I, pay for it. <laughs> no one wants to pay for it. So I'm not anticipating uh, this bill to uh, have a whole lot of uh, eagerness from municipalities because, again, there's no, there's, you got to wire cameras. I mean, it's not like, you know, this is New England. Cameras get beat up. Right. So, you know, there's uh, there's that proposal out there. Again, it's a pilot. And my hopefully gets through. I'm not that, I'm not that optimistic. Unless there's a way to give municipalities money, I'm not super optimistic. It's going to go fast. Yeah. But again, it's not a terrible idea. Something to banter about. I'm sure conversations will continue in a bit. Yeah. Uh, big news today. You probably may have heard, or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, the MBTA is hoping to eliminate all speed restrictions on uh, the subway system by the end of next year. Okay. Well, we'll believe it when we see it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that's according to the gm uh just this morning well the the challenge of the t is every time to make uh, one step forwards there's always two step backwards and uh, i can't, i'm not blaming this gm the gm inherited this problem uh from the prior administration and to be honest probably from two prior administrations now you know, 16 years of uh two governors that really did not have a clue about public transportation i'll be honest with you it's easy to talk poorly than people would actually leave but you know, I've been observing this stuff for a long time, and uh, you know, the, the choice of management has not been great. And again, Philing is a guy that you know is a is an engineer. He's a legit like rail engineer, and that's what we need—an operations person that you know knows how to run a system and actually save the system in Long Island City from you know basic collapse. So. Again, not envious of the position, very understanding, but it is, even though he didn't create the problem, it is his problem. Um, so let's see if they can pull this off. Um, you know, we had hoped the orange line would be all set and the green line, and the green line, you know, ties were a problem. And, uh, and I know it's been slow and arduous and painful for everybody on the red line, uh, but we have technology today that wasn't there 50 years ago to ensure uh, rail safety that didn't exist today. That exists today, didn't exist then, which is also a part of it as well so you know again they they lay the rail they check the rail they ultrasound the rail they run the trains on the rail slowly as you all sadly know they come back and check the rail again to make sure that it's okay after the trains run through then the rail has you have to go back over for a week slowly again they gotta go check the rail again to make sure that 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 the set the, the settling is co is correct and there's no problem that's the level of safety they're using at the mbta now if anyone would like to Propose they don't check those rails after every time the train goes through for for a week to make sure sediment occurs. I would like to hear from you and tell me why it's okay not to uh, do that. But this is not like 1950, where for the love of Pete, you know, none of that technology existed. And who I didn't even know who, what did he do back then? Were they eyeballed the stuff in the middle of the night. He prayed a lot, I think. <laughs> yeah, I get. I, I I mean, people have this perception of rail laying like they watched, you know, these. Movies of you know eighteen eighty railing you know the Intercontinental Railroad. It's it's not like that anymore. Where you just you know take a ruler and you figured eh, close enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's it's a it's a process now for sure. Um, I know you want to get back to your conference there uh, in Austin, Tacky, and probably get some good uh, barbecue too. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> let, let's let's hope I can eat something. Those of you know how my food allergies are quite immense so uh let's see uh, if i can have uh, some local cuisine somehow but uh you know yeah no it's it's, it's a good chance to do this i'm hoping there'll be other opportunities um probably after the session ends next year 
uh, to do some more conferences. I mean, it's it's hard to do it during the session to point out, you know, you're running through a session and you got to jump on a plane uh, right away and, and get here really late and a little drowsy uh, and try to pay attention today. Um, but I'm very thankful for the invitation for me to come uh, and, uh, you know, engage a lot of folks. And, um, you know, hopefully maybe we'll do a few more of these uh, podcasts uh, remotely uh, since we can be anywhere. Maybe we'll grab one when I'm on a legit vacation at some point. They can show oh, you the sights. Yeah, that'd be fun. Packing on the beach. Well, no, you wouldn't be on the beach. You don't like the beach, but yeah, something, something fun. Okay, we'll look forward to that. Well, we do remote. We do remote uh, tacky vacation tour with Joe if all y'all. So Joe actually do take vacations every so often. Where's Tacky? Where's Joe? That'll be a whole new series. Okay. <laughs> uh, contact time. Yep. Uh, the office is open. Room forty-two at the State House. Six one seven seven two 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 three seven zero. 617 3370 You can email me at T-A-C-K-E-Y dot C-H-A-N at Uh My email box is much more manageable these days, so I'm actually seeing things uh, much more easily right now. Uh, we have a legislature website, MALegislature.gov. You can look up the bills on your own, watch the public hearings and sessions. Uh, you can reach out at, uh, well, don't reach out. Please don't do this on your social media. But, I mean, I do have this state of Tacky Chan. You can see pictures of what's going on. I believe we're going to have pictures up from uh, the OTA uh, choir, OTA high school choir that visited the state house uh, actually on Wednesday as well. Uh, you know, they sang uh, the Grand Staircase. So we'll have some pictures there of us saying hi to these uh, kids from Japan, for example. Um, and then we also have TackyChan.org as a reference uh, guide for people looking for phone numbers and uh, of course x at tacky chan um, is available as well but again i discourage heavily social media contacting me definitely call the office and email directly um because it's just too many ways to keep track and it, it you know people don't seem to understand we get bombarded from like nine directions and you actually start to lose where things are and, and people, don't, people don't give us phone numbers and emails even they just like give us stuff and like i can't find you again it's so please give us at least your phone number okay sounds good and then uh, uh malegislature.gov right for the uh for the legislature yeah i mean you can look up your you know, like you can look up bills you can see status of bill reports and again you can watch public hearings as you know i check a super protection professional legislature you go to the he events and hearings you can watch um how i work um uh, as well as the other members of the legislature. And of course, you know, you can watch the sessions and debates. Uh, but, you know, it's a great resource. I really encourage people to do it. It's like a whole thing to make your own account just for yourself. And then you log in and you have like a whole thing you're monitoring. And, you know, it's it's a great way for people uh, to, um, you know, access information about having to call me. Okay. Well, thanks for taking some time out uh, to talk with us, Jackie. And uh, we'll let you get back to, uh, to your conference. We'll see you back here in Quincy. Yeah, see, you, see you back soon. Thank you, Joe.